Chapter Five of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Chapter Five A Great Farmhouse. These are bad times for farmers. I am sorry for it. Independently of all questions of policy, as a mere matter of taste and of old association, it was a fine thing to witness the hearty hospitality and to think of the social happiness of a great farmhouse. No situation in life seemed so richly privileged. None had so much power for good and so little for evil. It seemed a place where pride could not live and poverty could not enter. These thoughts pressed on my mind the other day in passing the green sheltered lane overhung with trees like an avenue that leads to the great farm at M, where, ten or twelve years ago, I used to spend so many pleasant days. I could not help advancing a few paces up the lane, and then turning to lean over the gate, seemingly gazing on the rich undulating valley crowned with woody hills, which as I stood under the dark and shady arch, lay bathed in the sunshine before me but really absorbed in thoughts of other times, in recollections of the old delights of that delightful place, and of the admirable qualities of its owners. How often I had opened the gate, and how gaily, certain of meeting a smiling welcome, and what a picture of comfort it was! Passing up the lane, we used first to encounter a thick, solid suburb of ricks of all sorts, shapes, and dimensions, then came the farm, like a town, a magnificent series of buildings, stables, cart-houses, cow-houses, granaries and barns that might hold half the corn of the parish, placed at all angles towards each other, and mixed with smaller habitations for pigs, dogs and poultry. They formed, together with the old substantial farmhouse, a sort of amphitheatre looking over a beautiful meadow, which swept greenly and abruptly down into fertile enclosures, richly set with hedgerow timber, oak and ash and elm. Both the meadow and the farmyard swarmed with inhabitants of the earth and of the air. Horses, oxen, cows, calves, heifers, sheep and pigs, beautiful greyhounds, all manner of poultry, a tame goat and a pet donkey. The master of this land of plenty was well fitted to preside over it, a thick, stout man of middle height and middle-aged, with a healthy, ruddy, square face, all alive with intelligence and good humour. There was a lurking jest in his eye and a smile about the corners of his firmly closed lips that gave assurance of good fellowship. His voice was loud enough to have hailed a ship at sea without the assistance of a speaking trumpet wonderfully rich and round in its tones, and harmonising admirably with his bluff, jovial visage. He wore his dark, shining hair combed straight over his forehead, and had a trick, when particularly merry, of stroking it down with his hand. The moment his hand approached his head, out flew a jest. Besides his own great farm, the business of which seemed to go on like machinery, always regular, prosperous, and unfailing, besides this and two or three constant stewardships, and a perpetual succession of arbitrations, in which such was the influence of his acuteness, his temper, and his sturdy justice, that he was often named by both parties and left to decide alone, in addition to these occupations, 
he was a sort of standing overseer and church warden. He ruled his own hamlet like a despotic monarch, and took a prime minister's share in the government of the large parish to which it was attached, and one of the gentlemen whose estates he managed, being the independent member for an independent borough, he had every now and then a contested election on his shoulders. Even that did not discompose him. He had always leisure to receive his friends at home, or to visit them abroad, to take journeys to London, or make excursions to the seaside, was as punctual in pleasure as in business, and thought being happy and making happy as much the purpose of his life as getting rich. His great amusement was coursing. He kept several brace of capital greyhounds, so high-blooded that I remember when five of them were confined in five different kennels on account of their ferocity. The greatest of living painters once called a greyhound the line of beauty in perpetual motion. Our friend's large dogs were a fine illustration of this remark. His old dog, Hector, for instance, for whom he refused a hundred guineas, what a superb dog was Hector, a model of grace and symmetry, necked and crested like an Arabian, and bearing himself with a stateliness and gallantry which showed some conscience of his worth. He was the largest dog I ever saw, but so finely proportioned that the most determined fault-finder could call him neither too long nor too heavy. There was not an inch too much of him. His colour was the purest white, entirely unspotted, except that his head was very regularly and richly marked with black. Hector was certainly a perfect beauty. But the little bitches on which the master piqued himself still more were not in my poor judgment so admirable. They were pretty, little, round, graceful things, sleek and glossy and, for the most part, milk-white, with the smallest heads and the most dove-like eyes that were ever seen. There was a peculiar sort of innocent beauty about them, like that of a roly-poly child. They were as gentle as lambs, too. All the evil spirit of the family evaporated in the gentleman. But to my thinking, these pretty creatures were fitter for the parlour than the field. They were strong, certainly, excellently loined, cat-footed, and chested like a war-horse, but there was a want of length about them, a want of room, as the coursers say, something a little, a very little, inclining to the clumsy, a dumpiness, a pointer look. They went off like an arrow from a bow, for their first hundred yards nothing could stand against them. Then they began to flag, to find their weight too much for their speed, and to lose ground from the shortness of the stroke. Uphill, however, they were capital. There their compactness told. They turned with the hair, and lost neither wind nor way in the sharpest ascent. I shall never forget one single-handed course of our good friend's favourite little bitch, Helen, on W. Hill. All the coursers were in the valley below, looking up to the hillside as on a moving picture. I suppose she turned the hair twenty times on a piece of greensward not much bigger than an acre, and as steep as the roof of a house. It was an old hair, a famous hair, one that had baffled half the dogs in the country. But she killed him. Then, though almost as large as herself, took it up in her mouth, brought it to her master, and laid it down at his feet. 
how pleased he was, and what a pleasure it was to see his triumph. He did not always find W. Hill so fortunate. It is a high, steep hill of a conical shape, encircled by a mountain road winding up to the summit like a corkscrew, a deep road dug out of the chalk and fenced by high mounds on either side. The hares always make for this hollow way, as it is called, because it's too wide for a leap, and the dogs lose so much time in mounting and descending the sharp acclivities. Very eager dogs, however, will sometimes dare the leap, and two of our good friend's favourite greyhounds perished in the attempt in two following years. They were found dead in the hollow way. After this, he took a dislike to distant coursing meetings and sported chiefly on his own beautiful farm. His wife was like her husband, with a difference, as they say in heraldry, like him in looks, only thinner and paler, like him in voice and phrase, only not so loud, like him in merriment and good humour, like him in her talent of welcoming and making happy and being kind, like him in cherishing an abundance of pets and in getting through with marvellous facility an astounding quantity of business and pleasure. Perhaps the quality in which they resembled each other most completely was the happy ease and serenity of behaviour so seldom found amongst people of the middle rank, who have usually a best manner and a worst, and whose best, that is, the studied, the company manner, is so very much the worst. She was frankness itself, entirely free from prickly defiance or bristling self-love. She never took offence or gave it, never thought of herself or of what others would think of her, had never been afflicted with the besetting sins of her station, a dread of the vulgar, or an aspiration after the genteel. Those words of fear had never disturbed her delightful heartiness. Her pets were her cows, her poultry, her bees and her flowers, chiefly her poultry, almost as numerous as the bees and as various as the flowers. The farmyard swarmed with peacocks, turkeys, geese, tame and wild ducks, fowls, guinea hens and pigeons, besides a brood or two of favourite bantams in the green court before the door, with a little ridiculous strutter of a cock at their head, who imitated the magnificent demeanour of the great Tom of the barnyard, just as Tom in his turn copied the fierce bearing of that warlike and terrible biped, the he-turkey. I am the least in the world afraid of a turkey-cock, and used to steer clear of the turkey as often as I could. Commend me to the peaceable vanity of that jewel of a bird, the peacock, sweeping his gorgeous tail along the grass, or dropping it gracefully from some low-bowed tree, whilst he turns round his crested head with the air of a birthday bell to see who admires him. What a glorious creature it is! how thoroughly content with himself and with all the world. Next to her poultry, our good farmer's wife loved her flower garden, and indeed it was of the very first water the only thing about the place that was fine. She was a real, genuine florist, valued pinks, tulips and auriculars for certain qualities of shape and colour with which beauty has nothing to do, preferred black ranunculuses, 
and gave in to all those obliquities of a triple refined taste by which the professed florist contrives to keep pace with the vagaries of the bibliomaniac. Of all odd fashions, that of dark, gloomy, dingy flowers appears to me the oddest. Your true connoisseurs now shall prefer a deep puce hollyhock to the gay pink blossoms which cluster round that splendid plant like a pyramid of roses. So did she. The nomenclature of her garden was more distressing still. One is never thoroughly sociable with flowers till they are naturalised, as it were, christened, provided with decent, homely, well-wearing English names. Now her plants had all sorts of heathenish appellations, which, no offence to her learning, always sounded wrong. I liked the bees' garden best, the plot of ground immediately round their hives, filled with common flowers for their use, and literally redolent of sweets. Bees are insects of great taste in every way, and seem often to select for beauty as much as for flavour. They have a better eye for colour than the florist. The butterfly is also a dilettante. Rover though he be, he generally prefers the blossoms that become him best. What a pretty picture it is, in a sunshiny autumn day, to see a bright spotted butterfly made up of gold and purple and splendid brown, swinging on the rich flower of the china aster. To come back to our farm. Within doors everything went as well as without. There were no fine misses sitting before the piano and mixing the alloy of their new-fangled tinsel with the old sterling metal. Nothing but an only son, excellently brought up, a fair, slim youth, whose extraordinary and somewhat pensive elegance of mind and manner was thrown into fine relief by his father's loud hilarity, and harmonised delightfully with the smiling kindness of his mother. His Spencers and Thompsons, too, looked well amongst the hyacinths and geraniums that filled the windows of the little snug room in which they usually sat, a sort of afterthought, built at an angle from the house and looking into the farmyard. It was closely packed with favourite armchairs, favourite sofas, favourite tables, and a sideboard decorated with the prize cups and collars of the greyhounds, and generally loaded with substantial work-baskets, jars of flowers, great pyramids of homemade cakes, and sparkling bottles of gooseberry wine, famous all over the country. The walls were covered with portraits of half a dozen greyhounds, a brace of spaniels as large as life, an old pony, and the master and mistress of the house in half-length. She as unlike as possible, prim, mincing and delicate in lace and satin, he so staring and ridiculously like, that when the picture fixed its good-humoured eyes upon you as you entered the room, you were almost tempted to say, how do you do? Alas, the portraits are now gone, and the originals. Death and distance have despoiled that pleasant home. The garden has lost its smiling mistress, the greyhounds their kind master, and new people, new manners and new cares have taken possession of the old abode of peace and plenty, the great farmhouse. End of chapter 5